I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. Uh, today we are going to, I, I, I told you in Psalm 1 that we would on occasions be moving away from the Masoretic text-based translations and toward the Septuagint translations, which is the Greek of the Old Testament, and this will be one such week. I do not intend to do that on a regular basis, but as it is demanded, I know that this is the second time now in four Psalms, so that makes it half the time. Uh, I don't know, I can't tell you how often that will occur in weeks to come, but on this occasion, um, the text, I think, is the, the message certainly is benefited by doing so. We have a couple of things, again, we're going to address that seem to be extra textual, but they really are not. Uh, last week, we talked about the attributions at the beginning of each psalm, and we also talked about the, the word translated or not translated, selah, or pause, or uh, rest. And, and we're going to see that in this psalm, used uh, in the Masoretic text twice, but in the Greek only once. And we're going to find that used regularly throughout the Psalms. Uh, but we do have a, a phrase that needs to be handled today. And so it's kind of a precursor to the message, but yet it does have something to do with this Psalm and with all the Psalms in which it is given to us. In, in our Masoretic text translation, which is not just the King James, New King James, it's the NIV, NASB, all of our modern translations of the Old Testament are derived out of the Masoretic text, which is uh, preserved by uh, a Jewish family in the, around 900 to 1000 uh, AD. And so uh, the, the Septuagint is the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles use uh, and has been uh, widely preserved. Um, and so there, there's going to be some variations, uh, sometimes significant and sometimes not, uh, sometimes purposeful, I believe, by the Masoretes. The Masoretes were Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore they manipulated some texts. Uh, we've seen that in studies in the past to avoid certain things, particularly uh, information that is given to us in the book of Hebrews, that they wanted to negate. They wanted to negate that perspective on Jesus Christ out of the Old Testament, particularly with regard to Melchizedek. And so we have seen their manipulations in other places. Um, whether that is formulated or purposeful in the Psalms, we can debate. Um, I'd rather not get into that, but I do think it is valuable for us to look at how the... the um, Believers in the early church and in the, the pre-Calvary Israel understood the Psalms. And this is a reflect, reflected, I think, more strongly in the Septuagint. And so at the beginning of, <coughs> excuse me, at the beginning of many of the Psalms, uh, we are going to have this, this statement. It's not an attribution. Uh, the attribution is, is not a problem that is a Psalm of David. It is the uh, statement and the phrase, to the chief musician. 
And you'll find this used in a large number of psalms, relatively speaking. It is not just, an, not just once or twice, it is multiple times. And as we come to that, uh, we will again reference that in the Septuagint, that phrase is translated very strongly and very differently than what you would think, uh, which is more than just a translation issue. It's a what did the text actually say? Um, the Greek Septuagint, uh, if you have an English translation, as I'll be using predominantly this morning, it says this, for the end. Now you say that has no connection to, to the chief musician, for it to say for the end. Now when I say it's for the end, you might think, well, is that the end of a service that we're supposed to use this psalm? Um, is it for the end time? We often associate the word for the end with a temporal application. That is, it's somewhere in time that we're going to use it in, in coordination with an event, either a day, a service, um, a, a, an age, that we can use the term the end. But the, uh, but the Orthodox Church really has, doesn't view it that way. They have never viewed it that way from my research. Their view is that when they speak of the end, they're not talking about a time, but a person. They see this as the one who will culminate everything that is really pointing to the Messiah, that these are psalms that have within them uh, prophetic information or uh, theological information about the Messiah. And so they will, in their uh, study notes, in their sermons, in their liturgy of the Orthodox Church, not just the Greek Orthodox, but the Russian Orthodox, all the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, even those that have been outlawed. Um, and if you, I, I, here's a little political parenthesis to my sermon, okay? Um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was outlawed by a man named Zelensky because of their opposition to him early in his uh, presidency of that country. Uh, not since the war, um, but rather early. And so the Orthodox Church in Ukraine is in a condition of severe persecution by its own government, where they are not allowed to meet, they are not allowed to speak freely, they do not hold services. Um, it is troubling, isn't it, to find how many times our country keeps landing on the side in these uh, conflicts on those who persecute Christians to those that permit liberty to Christians. And you think, well, communists certainly have persecuted the church. Yes, but they have also created an envelope of opportunity in Russia for the Russian Orthodox Church and then in their satellite nations uh, out of the US, old USSR to continue practice. And just like we saw in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Afghanistan, again and again, and even if you want to go way back into the 70s, even into Iran, we find that those that we have backed as a nation have always been those regimes that have persecuted Christians and outlawed them in comparison to those that we have helped overthrow. 
And so that is something for you to consider. And so several people have asked me about what's going on. Yes, we pray for the Ukrainian Christians, and we have something painted for us from the media that somehow that they are the, the uh, victims of Russian oppression, but Ukrainian oppression preceded that very greatly. So that just came out because of the Orthodox Church. So the Orthodox Church has translated this and understood this, not just recently in modern times, but historically, as being a designation that this is for the end or is concerning this one who is the end. And if you say, though, that's a weird way to talk about Jesus as the end, but how does Jesus describe himself in books like Revelation? I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And suddenly, once I put that, if I put in there uh, for the Omega, you would say, oh, well, that's referencing the Christ. And we neglect somehow that the end is also one of the designations of who Jesus is, that he is the culmination, he is the conclusion of the entire plan of God, and he is the object, the ultimate object of our worship. He, it is to him that we are directing this. And so this is going to be a phrase that you're going to find very often at the beginning of a psalm. In your Bible, it says, to the chief musician. In the Greek, it will say, for the end. And then the attributions are, are very common. And again, we have a musical statement saying, in psalms, would be how uh, that is in singing. And it's an ode by David, which is comparable with the stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And so that is the a variation that is going to be found consistently. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Every time we come to it, I'll probably just note it and hope you'll recall from this opportunity to engage it. And so I'm going to read it this morning out of both versions, the New King James first, and then follow it by the uh, English translation that we have of the Septuagint. So Psalm 4, God's word says to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress, have mercy on me, and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is what you have if you have a new king james version before you if you'll listen carefully i will slow down my pace i've had people complain a little bit about how my pace of reading out loud so i'll slow that down because you do not have this in front of you to follow along with me necessarily psalm 4 god's word declares for the end in psalms an ode of dave by david 
you heard me when I called, O God of my righteousness. You strengthened my heart when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you be slow of heart? Why do you love vain things and seek after lies? Know that the Lord made his Holy One wondrous. The Lord will hear me when I cry to him. Be angry and do not sin. Have remorse upon your beds for what you say in your hearts. Pause. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us good things? O oh Lord, the light of your face was stamped upon us. You put gladness in my heart. From their season of wheat, wine, and oil, they were multiplied. I will both sleep and rest in peace. For you alone, O oh Lord, cause me to dwell in hope. This gives us an opportunity to uh, look, and, and hopefully you picked up as I assume you were comparing text to text while I was reading and you were reading, uh, that it's really in the center of this psalm that there is a great distinction made. Uh, let's just begin by introducing the psalm's purpose. This is a psalm that you would sing uh, or uh, meditate upon or use in the evening. It probably would have been better for me to preach this sermon tonight. Uh, it would be an evening psalm. It is uh, something you would meditate on, sing, or use in worship prior to going to bed. Uh, by the way, the very next psalm, Psalm 5, is one for the morning. And you might think, well, these two should be reversed, but that's only because you're a Westerner who doesn't understand a biblical definition of a day. A day is the evening and then the morning. Not the midnight to the midnight. And so the evening and the morning was the first day. It's not a Jewish definition. It is a biblical definition built upon Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. And each day began with an evening and then a morning. And so we come to this and we say, well, here is the beginning of my day. And whether I sing this or celebrate this at sundown, at the beginning of the day, which is the evening, or throughout that time, certainly between sundown and my uh, going to my bedroom chambers, somewhere in that time, I will employ this in my worship. Now, we, some of us old-timers grew up where we were still required by our parents to, before we go to bed, uh, to pray a prayer, and usually with them. And so we would pray together. I don't know if any of you still practice that. Um, a lot of those things seem to have been, been lost or uh, abandoned. Uh, and so we 
come to this expectation, well, before I lay down, and we even have that prayer, right? Before, you know, I, I lay my head down, and if I should die before I wake, I pray my Lord, Lord, my soul take. So we have these rote, memorized prayers that we teach children to sing as they go to bed. Or to pray, I'm sorry, to pray before they go to bed. And, and this is such a psalm. And that is its appropriate use. And so you'll see it used in Vespers and things like that. You'll see it used in evening services by and large. Uh, and it is uh, evident. Uh, the, the psalm is built upon seven dyads. Now, a dyad is a same word used twice. And the difficulty here is that we are uh, using an English translation that isn't necessarily committed to communicating those dyads. And so they'll use a variety because English loves variety instead of repetition. Uh, we see a variety of words used, and so we lose track of the fact that there are seven uh, pairs uh, in which essentially the same Hebrew word is used, and it, it gives us some structure to this psalm. And so I'm going to pick out those seven dyads for you as we go. We're going to find them really initiated here um, in verse 1. <laughs> I, I'm, if I get my verses confused, I need to tell you why. Um, I may be one verse off sometimes. Uh, the, the, the Masoretic text does not give the uh, title of the psalm as a verse, but in the Greek it does. So the title is verse 1. What is verse 2 in your text in the Septuagint is verse 3, but it's verse 1 and yours is verse 2 and such. So I might be one off. Um, and I'll try to be attentive to that, but if I do, um, try not to uh, confuse things too much. And so right away in verse 1 and following, we are going to have uh, this opportunity to see these dyads used. And so we enter into this, and again, we find this to be a mixed-use Psalm. Remember last week we talked about the various kinds of psalms. And this is not only a prayer, but it is also a declarative, a wisdom psalm. We have a portion of this that is directed not toward God, but toward other men. And so we have this, this um, interesting uh, duality going on here, where we certainly have him communicating to God. We see that here in verse 1. And then we have him in verse 2, uh, then talking about to and about sons of men and giving them instruction. And then coming back, by the time we get to verses uh, 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 especially 7 and 8, um, but even half of verse 6, that back to speaking to God. And so we, we really have this mixture of purpose here uh, and we're going to try to address some of that as we go along too. So there's a lot in this little psalm, isn't there? But some of this is just introductory things that we're going to find in other psalms that use, that use these same uh, tools or techniques or verbiage. And so we come to the expectation, because we talk about it as a prayer psalm, uh, we find that he's going to, again, as we saw in the last psalm, he's going to rehearse God's goodness. 
And that is lost a little bit in the, in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint, you heard me when I called, O God of my righteousness. You strengthened my heart when I was in distress. And again, it is this tense that is used that communicates to us that there has already been a history of a relationship in which I have already called out to God. He has already responded. I am already at peace with God. I have al- he has already addressed my concerns. They have, my heart has already been strengthened. I have already called out to him. And this is one of the first dyad, is I have called. And that is there in uh, verse 1. And it is repeated again in... <laughs> I'm just going to mess this up. I'm going to have a hard time setting these... I'm just going to stick to this. You'll have to find it yourself. I have all my notes in my Septuagint here. In verse 4, where it says, uh, which I think would be in your verse 3, it says, Lord will hear me when I cry to him. I think uh, in yours it would be when I call to him at the end of verse 3. There it is. And so we have this first dyad, the first theme, if you will, I am crying out to God. I've done that in the past, and you have responded. You have already heard me. You have already satiated my request. You have already strengthened my heart. I was in distress, and I called to you then, and I call to you now. I have taken what I have seen you at work in my life. When I was in distress then, I called out to you. You responded. You are not a God that's difficult to get a hold of. You are not hiding from us. Um, If there is any break in our relationship, it is not on your part. It is on ours because of our sin. And so uh, based on the history of the fact that I cried out to you in the past, when I was in trouble, you heard me then. Whether that is earlier in the day, whether it's earlier in the week, the month, the year, or your life, we can rehearse the fact that God is readily available. He has in the past responded. And now we come down and it says, now I'm going to cry out to you in the future. And even now, as I sing this psalm. And so at the end of verse 3, you have that designation saying, the Lord will hear when I call to him. And uh, again, in the, in the um, very, very similar, the Lord will hear when I cry to him. And so, in the instructional portion uh, that is directed towards men, he says he is rehearsing to them that when I cry out to the Lord, he's responsive. Who responds to you? Do your idols respond to you? Do the vain things that you seek after respond to you? The Lord will hear my prayer when I call out to him, He responds. What about the things you search after? Why the lies that you follow, the vanities that you that you give yourself over to, the um, the the shame that you I think worthlessness is the term used in the in the New King James Version. That you go after all these things and none of them respond to you. This is very similar to the concept introduced in the prophets that you set up these things 
that, that have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear because they're out of stone and wood and gold, metal. And they're vain. They're worthless. You pray to them, what are they going to do for you? Nothing. But the Lord will hear when I cry out to him. And so that first dyad is that I have called, and the second dyad that we want to talk about is that we have been heard. In verse 1 is that, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Um, and then again, in verse 3, the Lord will hear when I call to him. And we have this expectation he has heard in the past. He has responded in the past. And if I cry out to him, he will hear. And this is the statement of confidence. We are driving towards the end of this verse where we can go to bed and have a great night's sleep. <laughs> That's where we're trying to get to. This is a, a nighttime prayer, a nighttime song to kind of resolve all the issues of the day, all the stresses that occurred that you should have been giving to God all along the way and crying out to Him if necessary, if, if, and it's always necessary, it's always beneficial, to cry out to Him and seek His intervention, that that should be the norm throughout the day. And at the end of the day, you can rehearse, well, God has strengthened me. He, made, he, he enabled me through this day. He heard my prayer. And He will hear this prayer. And much as we saw in... Last week, we see this responsiveness. I know this from the past, and now it is going to transform my thinking today and into the future that I will trust in the Lord. I will put my faith there. I will seek Him out because it is effectual. He hears me. He responds. And so our crying out isn't useless. And so this word cry out, call out, and it's responsive. Or these first two dyads that we want to talk about are, again, used in conjunction with one another. We cry, and God hears. And that's very different than the rest of the world. I, uh, the Hindus go out there, and they pick a nice smooth rock, and they paint on it, and they put it on a little thing, and they build a little house over it. I've seen them scattered all over the countryside, and they go and pray to it. Think about that. They're praying to a rock that couldn't even house itself, that I had to decorate. And think that somehow that will meet their needs. Oh, no, they cannot answer. <laughs> it's just a rock. Call it a God all you want, but it's just a rock. And so we come to these first two dyads and we find a confidence. And this is one of the sources of our peace, that our Lord does hear our cries. When we call out, He will hear us. He has heard us. And so we should continue to cry out to Him. And we should communicate that to others. We should be able to share with others that God answers our prayer, that He is active, involved, 
that He cares, He loves, He participates in our lives. But He waits for the invitation. Don't complain that God isn't doing enough in your life if you don't invite Him to do anything. Because you never call out to Him. The third dyad that we encounter here right away in verse 1 is the word righteousness. It is repeated again in verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Again, tied up into this, and, and I prefer the Greek here. It says, O God of my righteousness, as the uh, source, and, and it's comparable in the Masoretic as well, that the source of my righteousness is God. It is not based upon my own righteousness that God responded. I come to God as a sinner needing His help. I come to God confessing. I come to God repentant. I seek His, his forgiveness but I also call out to him and recognize I then have a responsibility to demonstrate the fruits of repentance in my life and understand that it's not just a removal of sin that we are seeking to attain. It is not a blank slate that God wants for us. He wants to attribute to us, he wants us to have righteousness, his own righteousness, imputed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist says, I come to you and I'm calling out to you, God of my righteousness. All of my righteousness I attribute and to you. Not only that which is judicially applied to me through imputation, but even the acts of righteousness I'm able to do now that I know you. Because I'm in a right relation with God, I have an opportunity to do what is right. To walk in the Spirit. To engage in the warfare of the Christian life against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I am in, in even that capacity to be able to uh, stand in opposition to evil and its temptations is derived from God's work in me through Holy Spirit. And thus, He is the God of our righteousness. And again, we should make the connection very quickly to James, the wisdom book of the New Testament, where it says that the prayers of who? Of righteous men avail much. Not just imputed righteousness, but active righteousness. I'm going to behave in a righteous manner, and does that affect your prayers? Yes, James speaks to it. David understands it here, that I am praying to the God who is offering righteousness, but also demanding righteousness of me. And it has an impact on my praying. And in the past, I have cried out to him, to the God of my righteousness, where I was the whether it's a repentant act or whether it is being attacked by evil men who are persecuting you while you are trying to serve the Lord, I cry out in that distress and he answers me. 
He strengthens me. Occasionally in the Psalms where I find him delivering me. In this case, it says, I have strengthened. I've been strengthened in my heart. But that is not the end. Because the psalmist is still praying. I am asking for mercy still. And so I've been delivered in the past, and whether I am confronting something in the nighttime or not, I am still seeking out God's mercy. I am asking for that. That is what I am still pursuing, his mercy. And mercy, again, is that I am seeking to uh, be saved from the judgment I deserve. Which tells us the psalmist isn't banking his prayers on being a nice guy. I'm not banking it on my own righteousness. That's a pharisaical approach to righteousness in prayer. That, well, and you can see it, right? I give this much. I go here. I go here. And we make this deal with God. See, I've already done all this as though somehow now God owes something to us. And we forget somehow that we are way, way, way over here on the scale of being the debtor to God. There is nothing nor anything and everything that you do that can bring you even to zero, let alone to put yourself in a position where you have God over a barrel and he owes you something. And so David comes to him and says, you're the God of my righteousness. And, and because it is all from you and to your glory, I continue to seek your mercy knowing who I am and the sin that is in my heart and mind and the tendencies of my life uh, that I'm going to have to keep seeking out your mercy. He is not coming to God built upon self-righteousness. He is crying out to the Lord seeking mercy that I want to have peace and peace requires that I not be under the thumb of God's wrath. I do not have his judgment hanging over me. I don't know how anyone can sleep in that condition. Which is why I think sleeplessness should be the condition of every lost person. How do you go to sleep at night? And we have that phrase, right? How do you live with yourself? Well, the Bible tells us how. There's only one way, and that is if their conscience becomes seared. And boy, we have become really proficient at searing people's consciences, haven't we? By saying these behaviors, these attitudes, and even these facts are subjective. They were not even talk about these things as sin. That's hate speech. Somehow, we have flipped it around, right? The Bible says, good will become evil, evil will become good. Because we want to sear people's consciences. If we can't do that, we'll at least just entertain them into oblivion. Whether that be through um, audio-video means, whether that be through, through chemical means, uh, whether that be through mechanical means, whatever it is, whatever mechanism we want to use, we basically want to move men into oblivion so they can sleep at night. 
and not deal with a conscience that knows they are sinners and under the pending wrath of God's judgment. The psalmist wants to have a good night's sleep. It means I'm going to come to God and ask for mercy. There may have been sin I've committed that I'm not even aware of. Have mercy on me, a sinner, saved by your grace. And this should be our daily activity, and this is a wonderful time of day to do that, to spend our evenings prior to trying to close our eyes and rest to be at peace with God. And that can only be when we seek His mercy. Now, I've already referenced on several occasions some of the alternative information that is really given in verses three through, I'm sorry, verses two through six, that is shared with the sons of men. This is their condition. I've already talked about the fact that they are searching after these worthless things. You are listening to lies. It is the condition of men. They love lies. They don't think they do. When I ask people directly, do you like being lied to? I have not had anyone say to me, oh yes, I really appreciate lies. And it doesn't matter what age or circumstance, do you like being lied to? Um, they really say no um, because they don't realize that they love lies. Um, they love flattery. Flattery is somebody telling you how wonderful you are when you know you're not that wonderful. Don't you all love that? That's called lies. You love lies. We love lies if they affirm us that we're okay. Right? That it's okay to be you, even if you are a serial murderer, I guess. Even if you don't know whether you're a man or a woman, um, it's okay to be you. We love those lies. It's not okay. It's not scientific. There's no basis in fact. It's a disease. It's a mental illness. But we love lies. We love preachers who lie to us. Oh yes, we do. We enrich them. Millions and millions follow them, buy their books to hear their lies. That God wants you to be wealthy, healthy. He wants you to have all your dreams fulfilled. He wants you, and we, we just line up for those lies, don't we? We throw our wallets on the stage, say, oh, thank you for those lies. This is the condition of men that brings false peace that brings the illusion of rest. And so this contention by the psalmist that we have to be different. If we're going to seek the Lord in truth, then we have to recognize that the natural man loves lies. We love wasted things. And there should be an alternative. And we have the gospel introduced here in verse 3. And again, it's not evident in your Masoretic text. This is what the verse that um, changed my mind on which text to use today. Uh, it says, Know that the Lord made His Holy One wondrous. 
The word holy one, the word saint, uh, that is translated here in your text as set apart. Um, I'm sorry, that uh, set aside as godly. Uh, it is not that God has set apart the prayer um, because he's godly, and that's kind of the, the feeling that you get. The, 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 the way the Masoretic text reads, it's that David is the one God has set apart um, and has designated because he is godly. The one who is godly, God sets apart. Um, and that word is also known as sanctification, but even that word we have a problem with. Whereas in the Greek, we have it very clearly that the Lord has made his Holy One wondrous. And perhaps in your margins, you might have set apart being or wondrous. It is not David, the petitioner, that God has made wondrous. It is the Holy One. And in the Greek, that is capitalized. He has made the Holy One wondrous. And what we have in this psalm is a strong contrast between what men go to, worthless things, lies, and contrast that to what God has set up before you, and that is His Holy One, Jesus Christ. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has set Him up. He is the wondrous one. He is the one that you should value. He is the one you should pursue. He is the one that you should glory in. He is the one that you should, should spend everything to acquire. Oh, the Christian life is a costly thing because that which we pursue is of so much greater value than anything on the earth. Why pursue these things only lead us to shame, to worthlessness, to lies? Why are we so slow of heart, is what the Septuagint says, when we should know that the Lord has made wondrous His Holy One. And it is based upon that that the psalmist prays his prayer for God's mercy. The Lord will hear me when I call to Him because He has set up His Holy One as wondrous. That through Jesus Christ I now have a mediator. Wow. I pray, I call to God, He hears me because I have a mediator, the Holy One. Not my holiness, the Holy One that God has made wondrous. How does God made the Holy One, the Messiah, wondrous? Well, He's done that through the resurrection, hasn't He? And through the ascension and the exaltation. Philippians 2 says that God, Jesus humbled Himself, became a servant, and God hath highly exalted Him. He has made Him wondrous. And the psalmist is speaking not of the past, but of the future. He's saying the wondrous one, the, the, the holy one that God made wondrous, he can speak of this by faith, that God will exalt this mediator between himself and the Almighty, that I can pray and he will listen. Because I have a go-between. 
the wondrous one, the Holy One of God. And this is set in contrast to what the world has, which is pathetic. So then we come, we are still in the condition of addressing these sons of men. (laughs) And we come to verse 4. Be angry, do not sin, have remorse upon your beds for what you say in your hearts. Um, The term be angry there is, again, a difficult translation. Um, A better one that most commentators, if you read, will go to is there's a different Hebrew word for what we think of as rage, anger, wrath. Uh, This word is really about trembling, of being agitated, being frustrated. Um, And the psalmist, remember, is talking to the sons of men and is saying, you should be agitated. You should be trembling and not sinning. You should be pursuing righteousness. You should lay in your beds shaking with fear over the fact that you are in the hands of an angry God who is holy, holy, holy. He has established His Holy One as wondrous, and that should not give you peace. That should make you tremble. That He hears my prayer, and you're praying to a rock. To a hunk of wood that you carved. To an electronic device that somebody else programmed. And that's who you trust in. You should be trembling. You should be so afraid that you should be seeking to stop sinning. You should be lying in your beds with remorse. Again, we miss a little bit of this in the or in the Masoretic text. It says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Much prefer the Septuagint. It says, have remorse upon your beds for what you have said in your hearts. You should be laying there full of remorse, full of regret, full of, full of angst over what you have said in your hearts. You haven't even said it out loud but you know it's there. That you believe in yourself, you believe in anything but the one true and living God who has sent His Holy One to be made wondrous in your sight and and you instead would rather follow after lies. I encounter, uh, in the course of my ministry, I've I've encountered many young people and I I am sad to report to you that very, very few of them have followed the truth that I know they were taught because I taught it to them. And I don't want them lying in bed, peacefully sleeping. I want them to be lying there trembling because they know the truth and they would prefer the lies of this world and the entertainment of this world. I want them trembling in their beds. I want them full of remorse in their beds. I want them to toss and turn as they contemplate just the wickedness that they have thought of that they haven't even said. 
Well, the Bible says that what you say in your hearts is wicked all the day long. And here, in the text, Greek text, we are called to pause. We have now put forward the contrast. Here's the world, and here's how their nighty-night time should be. <laughs> this is what it's like for them. They got to take drugs to fall asleep. And whether that drug is over-the-counter like alcohol or whether that's something stronger, barbiturates or whatever, they have to take these drugs or whether it's entertainment. They have to take drugs to sleep. They have to, they have to meditate on lies. They have to be convinced that the worthless things they're pursuing are somehow not worthless. They should be trembling because they're under the wrathful judgment of God. They should be remorseful over the, the not only the, the actions of sin that they won't turn away and stop doing, um, but even the, the imaginations of their heart that are continually towards sin. And let's just stop there and, and let that set for a little while. Let's pause. Take a deep breath. There's the contrast. The Christian gets righteousness from God. Calls out to him and God hears him and strengthens him. We have a living God that is willing and desiring to extend his mercy, his grace, his power toward his people, even sharing his righteousness with us. So what's the solution, O men, sons of men? Well, the solution, and by the way, you already know the one of the dyads I didn't refer to, and that was in verse 4 where it talks about being your bed. And we're going to revisit that in verse 9, right? So we have this idea of here's their bed, here's my bed. See the contrast? We have what's going on in their hearts in verse 4. What's going on in your heart in the bed of the lost man, of the man who is believing lies, Versus what's going on in the heart in verse 7 of the one who trusts in the Lord. And there's our dyad, I think, number 5. And again, we are confronted with, what do we do? Well, he tells them. Kind of an interesting psalm, isn't it? It's kind of like you're going to bed with a buddy who doesn't know Christ. <laughs> and you're singing this psalm out loud. So he knows why you're going to sleep like a baby and why he's going to toss and turn. It's an evangelism psalm. Talks about Christ. So here's the solution. Verse 6, offer the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the Lord. And again, the invitation is there. 
that you, that you come before God and the first righteous sacrifice we have is of ourselves, that we surrender to Christ our will, that we make him our Lord, and that we put our trust, our hope in him. And again, this word hope is another one of our dyads that we have before us, and it's going to repeat it in verse 9. And it says, I will dwell in hope. We live in that condition, and now we implore these others, hope in the Lord. I am not hoping, my prayer is not hoping in wishfulness. It's not hoping in, in, in emptiness. I'm not sitting there in an orphanage saying, tomorrow, tomorrow. And that's what we have a concept that that's hope. That's from Annie, in case you missed that connection. Um, I'm not trusting in tomorrow. I'm trusting in God, the one who responds, the one who listens, the one who has sent his son, the Holy One, and made him wondrous in our sight. This is who I'm hoping in, and I implore you to hope in him. So many people, there are many who say, who will show us good things? In your text, who will show us any good? The world really wants what God has to offer, but they have been caught up in worthless things and in lies. And if they were honest in their conscience, knowing what's in their hearts and in their minds, the things they have meditated upon, the things, the evil they have conceived, and even though they haven't acted it out, if they would just be remorseful and sleep on their beds, if they would trust in the Lord, they would ask, where is there something good for us? Well, there's only one place where they're going to find something good. And it's not by hanging out with you. Have you ever had those individuals and in you know friends that you know were worldly? They weren't believers, uh, but they came into contact with you either at work, at school, in the neighborhood, whatever. They wanted to hang out with you um, because you were different, and they just liked being around you. Any of you guys have friends like that in your history? I've had a few of them, and and it's like. Just hanging out with me is not going to help you. Unless you understand what defines me. And so they want something good. They want it. They, they want what you have. And the Bible says, be ready to what? To give the reason for the hope that is in you with fear and trembling. Be ready to answer that question. When they come to you and say, what do you have that I'm missing? I, and it might not be those words that they exactly use, but they might say, well, I like being around you. Think, I, I just feel better when I'm with you. And it's like, well, it's not really me. I am not the source of the goodness that you seek. And that's what they're seeking. They're asking this question. Where can I find something good? That's the question they ask. Who will show us good things? And many, it says there in verse 6, will say this. And this is 
one of the dyad words that's repeated in the very next verse. <laughs> that you have all these people asking, is there something good? Who can bring us something good? And we're over here with multiplied good being done in our life. Not by our own righteousness, but by the work of God in us. Because we hope in the Lord. And so you'll see it there. Um, uh, in the Masoretic text, it says more than. And that's actually the same Hebrew word as many. This multipliedness. There's a multitude of people asking, is, who can give us something good? Who will show us good things? Well, there is a multitude of goodness waiting for those who hope in the Lord. And again, the psalmist really concludes this section and redirects now to God. I've concluded instructing you all, <laughs> describing your condition, describing what your nights should be like, describing the fact that this is your only hope is to trust in the Lord. I have given you essentially a, in a very, in a nutshell, uh, what it means to become a Christian and be in the condition where God hears your cries, responds to them, and strengthens your heart. I have now communicated that to you, and now I'm going back to talk to God. Oh Lord, the light of your face was stamped upon us, and I love this verbiage so much better than the Masoretic. Masoretic states this, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, which is a request uh, that somehow God hasn't done that, and that's really not communicated in the text. It is really, again, communicating, oh Lord, this is what you've already done for me. You have stamped your image upon me. And I love the phraseology used here in this um, there, that the light of your face was stamped upon us. When we talk about the face of the Lord, if it is turned towards you, it means He is attentive and caring for you. When He turns His face away from you, you are in deep trouble. There's nothing left for you but judgment. There's no mercy. But the condition of the one, the psalmist here that's, that's writing the psalm here, the, the prayer, the petitioner, is listen to his condition. Listen carefully to how he describes himself. The light of your face was stamped upon us. The light of his face is his glory. Has been stamped upon you. You are his. Now, the imagery here really goes all the way back to creation when we were made in his image and in his likeness that he puts a stamp on us as special creations of God, unique from all the rest of the creatures on earth, that we carry his image and likeness. They have taken that kind of terminology and put it here, and now, in addition to that, we have the light of his face as the glory, the favor of him, of his smiling down on you, the light of his face has been stamped upon us. It has been, it is now defines 
who we are and what we are. We are the children of God, the righteous one who has established his holy one as glorious. And that is stamped on me. It is who I am, what I am. It defines me. He is not asking for this. He is declaring it. The light of your face was stamped upon us. You put gladness in my heart, he says. This is already my condition. And oh, that before we would lay our heads down in our pillows, we remind ourselves whose we are and why and how that happened and to what extent it involves the favor of God in our life and that we should have gladness in our heart, not because we have no opposition and no troubles and no problems, but because God is attentive to them. He has stamped his favor upon you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that he's referring to. I'm convinced of it because he is the seal of our inheritance. That you will be sons of God. He is the proof. And the result is that we have gladness. Again, he's not asking for this. He's rehearsing it before God that this is what you've done for us. Here's the condition of people and this is what I was like before I came to know you and trust in you, but you have stamped your glory, the light of your face into my life, and you have put gladness where there is just remorse in the heart of man. There is gladness here in my heart. And the gladness is multiplied and because we don't live in an agrarian society, we kind of miss out on the last part of verse 8. It is multiplied like the seasons of wine, wheat, and oil. That is the happiest time of year in agrarian society. All that work coming to fruition. All that, and, and by the way, the, the weeks just prior to harvest, they're the meagerest weeks. You know why? Because all your food stores are running out. And you're eating the stuff you haven't really liked, but it's all that's left now. <laughs> you're waiting for harvest. And when harvest comes, oh, what gladness. Why do you think so many Jewish holidays are right around September? In this season, even in the first harvest, the, the early harvest, first fruits harvest, and we find that these are a time of gladness, of feasting, of rejoicing. He says, I have this multiplied in my life because I have trusted in the Lord, because I have this history with God, and so I can lay myself down with absolute confidence that God is for me. And who can be against me if that is my condition? Can the circumstance of life, can the government, can this bully at school, can... can Put the list. Who can be against me if God is for me? If the light of his favor is stamped upon me, gladness has filled my heart like a perpetual harvest season. A multiplied harvest has come into my life. He says, now I will both sleep and rest in peace. For you, O Lord, O Lord, for you alone, O Lord, cause me to dwell in hope. The evening psalm. I can go to rest. I can lay myself down and sleep soundly and peacefully 
I can be at full rest because of what the Holy One who was made wondrous by God has done for me, that I can put my trust in Him, that I have already cried out to Him. He has already heard me. He has strengthened me. I am at peace while the world is in, in despair. I have hope. While the world is in turmoil, I have calm. While the world has nothing to hold on to, I have every confidence in the one true and living God. This is what I need to be reminded of before I go to bed at night. And that's what this psalm allows. Read it tonight, sometime after sunset and before bedtime. With fresh eyes. Maybe you can look it up on their computer and get an English translation of the Septuagint so you can remember that the foundation of all of that is the Holy One, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the one who offers this kind of peace, this kind of rest, this kind of even sleep for his own. That he stamps his favor upon us and defines us by that. The last word, hope, there in this psalm um, in, is lost in your Masoretic. It says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. word hope has so much more depth and breadth to it than safety. Hasn't um, several commentators talk about that this Hebrew word not only talks about a hope for today and for the morning, which we're going to be studying next week in the next psalm. What, what are we going to sing in the morning now? If this is what I'm singing at night, what am I going to do in the morning after a good night's rest? Um, but it not only has that, but it has an eschatological tone to it. That my hope isn't just for tomorrow or the night's rest, but my hope is for my forever future. I have a confident hope in the Lord for my eternity. And that puts all the rest of this into perspective that it cannot steal that away. For my hope is in the Lord. My trust is there in the Holy One that God has made wondrous. And so I will continue to seek His mercy because I know He hears me for He has heard me. And I will get a good night's sleep. We might have darkness here very soon. Sounds like we have a really bad storm. Have no fear. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for the opportunity to look into your word this morning, for the powerful contrast we see between the people of hope and of salvation, of righteousness, of your Holy One, and those who have nothing but vanity and lies. Lord, make it ever more evident to us of how much you have done for us. Lord, help us to be stamped with your image. 
with your glory, with your face shining upon us. Lord, as the world sees us at peace with you and at peace with our circumstances, at peace even with our enemies, when they see us at rest, Lord, help us to share the reason for that. And it's not that we are following after anything in ourselves or our circumstances, but that we are rest because we have followed after you. Help us to share the Gospels, the psalm so powerfully does to the sons of men that we encounter who have sleepless nights, who have no hope, who are in despair and deceived. Lord, we pray for them that you might raise up opportunity for us to engage them this week, perhaps even today, that we might communicate to them their need to pursue the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, to trust in the Lord with all their heart, to seek the good things of God by surrendering themselves to him alone. Lord, let this be a message of our lives and on our lips and in our songs. Lord, we thank you so much for the rest. We look forward to that final rest in your presence in glory. Until that day, Lord, we pray you might find us faithful. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.